мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. In this podcast, I talk to Gordon Hahn to get an update of Russia's military intervention in Syria, the Islamist threat to Russia, and the state of American analysis of Russia. Gordon Hahn is an analyst and advisory board member at Geostrategic Forecasting Corporation, an adjunct professor at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies in Monterey. He is the author of several books, most recently of The Caucasus Emirate Mujahideen, Global Jihadism in Russia's North Caucasus and Beyond. Russia is into its uh, third week of its military campaign in Syria. What is your impressions of things so far? Uh, in general, it looks like uh, they're, they're fairly effective. I haven't seen any evidence that uh, uh, they're not being uh, effective. They're obviously attacking across the broad front, that is, attacking anyone who's fighting against the Assad regime, not just uh, ISIS. It looks like most of their attacks are targeting uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and North Caucasus uh, connected uh, groups, or at least areas where those groups are active around uh, Idlib and um, uh, Aleppo, mostly, mostly in Idlib uh, province where there are a series of uh, Caucasus Emirate groups, uh, tied Emirate groups uh, uh, located in groups from the North Caucasus, not necessarily tied to the Caucasus Emirate. So, you know, I think that that, that follows the, uh, along the objectives that they have, which are, you know, in my view, there were threefold, basically, were to, first of all, protect the Assad regime, which Putin stated directly to the world and to the American people, Uh, in the Charlie Rose interview, so there's no uh, subterfuge going on in that re respect. Uh, and he also um, wanted to deal with uh, the jihadi threat emanating, emanating from Syria that is uh, connected uh, very closely to the North Caucasus. There are long-standing ties between groups in the, in the North Caucasus uh, and the Syrian opposition. And the third objective is to um, compete with the United States in the region and make sure that Russia has a say in any in the geopolitics and uh, any resolutions of the issue of issues in in the in the region. Let's talk about the last point that you just made about uh, having influence in the region and and possibly the outcome of a, a post civil war Syria. Um, in what ways does Russia want to exert its influence? Uh, by what tactics or by what? Uh, in what terms, of, in a geopolitical sense. In terms of goals, what yes. goals? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Uh, I think basically they want to, they see themselves still as being a, a global power with interests at a minimum uh, across the Eurasian, you know, what the, the old uh, Mackinderites would call the, you know, the, the, the world island. That's Europe or any place in the Eurasian continent uh, writ large. Um, and Syria falls uh, into that area. Probably they don't consider that their interests fall as far as, uh, say, northern Africa. But anywhere along the southern arc from uh, the Middle East all the way over to uh, India uh, and, of course, in, in China as well to the east, they consider themselves to have uh, uh, closer in, in central Eurasia a, a sphere of influence. And outside that, certainly an area where they think their influence 
um, should be felt and have an effect, even though they may not be the dominant influence. And I think that that, that is their goal. Uh, and then you have all the cultural connections and the other issues, such as the connection between the jihadists directly into Russia, and then the you know the Christian connection with uh, uh, Syria and so forth. So there are all sorts of reasons. A long historical relationship between Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the Orthodox Christians in Syria. But those are, I think, sort of secondary issues. But they, you know, tend to uh, reinforce the desire to have this kind of a role. Now, you recently wrote about um, the fact that, and, and others have pointed it out, that by siding with Assad and Iran, Russia has allied itself with the Shia against the Sunni in, in a wider sectarian war um, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and, and, and many have noted that this might be a problem because uh, the majority of Russia's Muslims are Sunni. Um, wh- what's your opinion of, of the Putin's Shia-Sunni dilemma? Uh, well, I basically, I think, to some extent, I don't want to overstate it, but to some extent, I think it will make it a little easier for the jihadist groups in the North Caucasus to recruit, because um, you know, the Sunnis in the North Caucasus don't have a, any uh, love for the, for the Shiites either. There are, so there are two groups in the North Caucasus now, the former, the uh, old Caucasus Emirate, and then the new group under the Islamic State. Uh, the other issue is that... Um, it may cause problems inside the official clergy and the official um, Islamic community in Russia because some of the clergy, for example, uh, are members of an international um, organization of Muslim scholars that's headed by the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, Qadawi. Uh, and Qadawi declared jihad against um, Russia a while back. And... Um, some of these uh, Russian, uh, Russian um, Islamic uh, clergy have made statements that are sort of wishy-washy in the past. Some of them have actually um, uh, supported the overthrow of Assad. Uh, of, uh, Assad. So, for example, Ravil Ganutin, who was the head of the, the Council of Muftis of Russia two years ago, stated that uh, uh, Assad, Assad should be overthrown. He also supported the overthrow of Gaddafi. Now he's backtracked on... on uh, those issues, but he remains a member of this International Council of Ulema, uh, as is the um, head of the um, Muslim Spiritual Board of Tatarstan, uh, Samay Gulen. And so this creates a bit of a problem inside the Russian community as well. And there are probably some official clerics, I don't want to overstate that, some whose loyalty is probably questionable and probably wouldn't mind seeing some form of uh, Sharia law being established somewhere on uh, Russian territory at some point in the future, but they're smart enough not to come out and say that. And and what about uh, the Muslims in general in Russia? How much does this affect their views uh, vis-a-vis Russian society and the Russian state? Does it have any impact at all or potential impact? I think that, that, that there's some potential impact for some of the more um, fervently religious and maybe those alienated from the state for, for whatever reasons, uh, that this would be just one more uh, drop in the, uh, in the bucket that might lead to some alienation. I don't think it should be overstated, uh, but it certainly helps, uh, helps I think, uh, radical Islamists, whether they're peaceful Islamists or the jihadists, uh, in their recruiting um, to some extent. I think it expands the recruitment pool slightly. It's, it's a very simple way to put it. 
What threat does ISIS and other Islamist groups currently pose to Russia in the North Caucasus and in Central Asia? Well, uh, in more recent, uh, looking at some of the more recent events, for example, the Russian FSB just uncovered a, an IS, uh, a group at least tied to IS, who had received allegedly training in IS camps in Syria, uh, who were planning a terrorist attack in Moscow, and they arrested 12 uh, Muslims, two or three of whom were from Syria, and the rest were from the North Caucasus, um, including Chechens. And they were planning to attack, um, apparently, like from the description, it looks like they were planning to carry out a suicide bombing on transport, probably on the Moscow metro. Uh, so, but the interesting thing here is that this group infiltrated, uh, the, it came into Russia before the operations in Syria, the Russian operations in Syria began. So there's a long-standing threat that goes farther back, and that, that involves the Caucasus Emirate, which was founded in 2007, but it's since 2011, and it's a global jihadi organization. Its ideology is indistinguishable from Al-Qaeda's and the Islamic State, although there are subtle differences in the struggle for power, for power between these groups. Um, and they've had a downturn in fortunes since 2011, and that was accelerated in 2012 by the exodus of many fighters and then potential recruits who could replace those fighters uh, heading to Syria and Iraq, first Syria and then later Iraq. So that led to a sharp downturn in the number of attacks the Caucasus Emirate was able to uh, carry out. And uh, by last year, I think they were carrying out less than less than 100, whereas at one point they were doing in 2010, 2011, uh, six, 700 per year. So it was a major operation. Then the big issue is that this year, the about um, emirs representing approximately 70 to 80 percent of the emirs of the Caucasus Emirate declared the loyalty oath, the bayat, to the Islamic State and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, but they've, for all we know, they've remained in the North Caucasus. So you basically now have two groups fighting in the North Caucasus. You have the Caucasus Emirate, which is more loyal to al-Qaeda, and then you have the, the so-called Caucasus Vilayat of the Islamic State, which is an affiliate of the Islamic State. Is there fighting between those groups at this point, or no? Uh, there has not, as far as I've heard, there there's not been any fighting between those two groups. And right now, they're both focused on, um, uh, I think, uh, gathering up their forces. The Caucasus Emirate could be on the verge of uh, total collapse because it's been three months since their emir, the uh, last emir, was killed, and they still haven't been able to announce who the new emir is. Uh, there's some signs of life on their websites, but um, you know, I think they're on the ropes. And now they're going to have to compete with a potentially much more successful organization that's going to probably have access to much more financing that is more successful in other parts of the world. So there's no reason to think it's not going to be more successful in uh, Russian North Caucasus. And what about Central Asia? Um, in Central Asia, there's some infiltration by the Islamic State. And then there are all sorts of um, groups. Uh, uh, there's a Jund Halafat group, there's a uh, from Tajikistan, there's an Ansar Rula group also from Tajikistan, there's the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. Some, uh, at least part of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, if not all, declared their loyalty to the Islamic State a few months back. Um, so this is a real problem, especially when you had, well, up until yesterday, you had the imminent withdrawal of all, all American forces from Afghanistan. Uh, but now they're, now they're not going to be with, with at least 5,500 or remain. 
But nevertheless, nevertheless, you see the um, uh, Taliban making inroads north into Kunduz, and that certainly threatens uh, Tajikistan. And Tajikistan obviously has a very weak state. Uh, so there is, I think, you know, another that is just an, an additional reason that the Islamic state threat and the overall global jihadi revolutionary movement threat uh, also can reach Russia through Central Asia, not just through the North Caucasus. Now, you recently uh, evaluated Putin as a foreign policy strategist and a foreign policy tactician. Um, how does the, the Russian campaign into Syria fit into your understanding of Putin as a strategist and as a tactician? Well, certainly, I mean, this seems to be, uh, depending on how things work out, but certainly he, this has been a rather clever, clever move in that he's sort of been able to gain some leverage in the, the opening channels, diplomatic channels to the United States through this move. Um, he was very quick to pick up on the fact, well, maybe not very quick. I mean, it was obvious a few years because this was the case, but certainly he's taken advantage of, very cleverly taken advantage of the fact that the United States doesn't seem to have a very clear or very robust policy in Syria. And he's been able to insert Russia into this without at present at least risking high numbers of casualties, um, inordinately, burden, inordinately burdening the budget. For now, we'll see how long the campaign goes and, and how that might change. Uh, there's some signs that the military, the budget for next year is, is going to be much more heavily um, uh, on the part of, on the side of the military rather than on social spending, and that could create problems given, you know, the general state of the economy as a result of low oil prices and sanctions. Um, so, on the strategic level, he's certainly taking a big risk. But on the tactical level of, of, of trying to take care of uh, various problems, right, the threat to global, the uh, threat from the global jihad, um, a way of challenging and at the same time reopening channels with uh, Washington uh, and also gaining leverage with Europe by taking this action. And the Europeans are looking at the United States and saying, well, you know, why, why, why hasn't some, at least some Europeans, why has the United States done something robust like this? Why are we leaving this to Putin? Um, so I think it's a generally uh, it's, it generally supports my general view that he's you know he's a he's a pretty good strategist. I don't think he's a genius, but I think he's he's very clever when it comes to um, uh, tactical issues and taking advantage of, of opportunities. And we saw the same thing uh, in Ukraine, where uh, uh, he was able to use the fall of a relatively pro um, uh, Russian regime uh, to snatch Crimea back for Russia. Uh, and cause problems for the regime in, in, in uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, though those problems existed before Russia began its intervention. Uh, but nonetheless, he um, certainly made that problem even greater. So uh, I think he's very good at taking advantage of certain situations. I th uh, someone mentioned that he's very good at uh, playing with a weak hand. And I think that's true, although I wouldn't want to state his weak hand. Uh, the mili Russian military is not an insignificant force. Uh, the Russian economy is uh, still one of the top 10 economies in the world. And Russia has all sorts of geo, geographical and geopolitical advantages that gives them access to various parts of the world and, um, and civilizations and cultural um, relationships with different countries that, uh, for example, we in the United States don't simply don't have.
Yeah, somebody, people have also pointed out the fact that this also may allow for Putin to have a better position in which to negotiate some kind of solution over Ukraine. And, and people have certainly pointed out the timing in which it seems that the Ukrainian crisis is kind of winding down or at least kind of fizzling to or going to a low simmer uh, at the same point in which Putin is taking action in, in the Middle East. Do, what, do you see a connection between these two things? I think that needs a little bit more research. I wouldn't want to make a definitive statement. I read something uh, yesterday in which someone said this operation had to have been begun uh, to be in planning about nine months ago. So it would be interesting to go back and see, um, you know, when the situation actually began to quiet down in Ukraine. And my memory is failing me now on that. I don't think it goes quack, uh, quite back to, um, uh, nine months, but certainly over the last five or six months, and maybe sometime in the process of him planning and thinking about maybe acting in Syria, he decided you know, we can't be doing uh, these two things at once. And maybe it's uh, time that we really push uh, the Donbass to um, take things down a notch and um, stabilize the situation in Ukraine. I've never been one who thought that Putin had great designs on taking all of eastern Ukraine or building some Nova Russia project. I think that this is all uh, nonsense. Quite honestly, I think he was acting in basically in a defensive mode after the collapse of the Yanukovych regime. And one way to save his face was to grab the uh, Crimea. And another way to um, uh, gain leverage was to let all the volunteers who wanted to go over the border go there and intervene uh, once or twice on behalf of the, um, uh, the Donbass rebels when they got in trouble uh, fighting against the Ukrainian army. But it wasn't the Russians who started the war. It was the Kiev that started the war. I've been quite struck by the intensity of uh, American propaganda in response to Russia's bombing of Syria. Um, in, in particular, the constant repetition that the Russians aren't bombing ISIS, and then the sudden dis rediscovery of the so-called moderate rebel. Um, what's your opinion of the American media campaign? Uh, the media campaign... The, United, the American media has basically become um, a propaganda tool for one group or another, depending on uh, on the situation. Um, there are all sorts of, you know, neither neither conservatives nor liberals very much like Russia or Putin. So there's really no incentive for uh, the American media to challenge the Obama administration's line on what's going on. So they've been basically fostering this um, uh, double distortion. One, that Putin somehow claimed that he was only fighting ISIS, when in fact he went on the Charlie Rose show and, and told the American people, looked right into their eyes and said, uh, Takiyas, when they asked him, um, uh, when Charlie Rose asked, uh, you intervened to support the Assad regime? He said, yes, of course, that's why I'm doing it. But then he also said there were other factors. And I think that all these factors together actually drove him to intervene. It wasn't, if there would just been the issue of Assad, I don't think he would have done it. But the fact that's connected with the jihadi threat, which also threatens Russia, and the challenges that Putin wants to uh, make towards the, uh, the challenge of the unipolar world and so-called American hegemony and so forth, um, there were very good reasons from his point of view to do so. So you have this double distortion going on, one that somehow Putin uh, said that he was only going to be fighting ISIS, 
when he never said that. In fact, he said he was going to take on Syria and he would be taking on all the jihadi groups. Um, and then the other issue is that they're only attacking, uh, they're only attacking so-called moderate forces. And in fact, some of the reporting gives you the impression that they're only fighting, they're only attacking the most moderate forces. That is not, not even any of the jihadists. There's no distinction made in the Western reporting between different groups, different non-ISIS groups. There's either ISIS or there's the moderate opposition. And of course, the second most powerful group, opposition group, and maybe the most powerful opposition group in Syria, the Jabhat al-Nusra, which is essentially a Al-Qaeda uh, unofficial affiliate and certainly allied. And then there are a host of all, other, all sorts of other jihadi groups and coalitions that exist. And, and also, there's not a real sharp degree of uh, separation between uh, the jihadi groups and the non-jihadi groups. And then, of course, you have Islamist groups, groups that necessarily wouldn't want to use violence, but now they've been forced into using violence because the war started, uh, that are group, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and so forth and so on, that are also involved. That, you know, personally, I would not want to see coming to power in Syria, although our president may have a different view because he appears to have a different view, yet appeared to have a different view on that when it came to Egypt. Uh, so, you know, the distortions are just shameful. They're absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, shameful. Uh, it, you know, it's journalistic malpractice, and that's, you know, putting it mildly. How do you explain this? Because I, I was recently asked, uh, I was giving a talk about uh, the media and the role of the media in Ukraine, and somebody said, you know, well, you know, the Russian case is easy. You have a really direct line of, of state to state television, and the state kind of dictates how television reports or the parameters in which television reports, uh, you know, the crisis in Ukraine. But in the United States, it you, you don't have this kind of direct link between the state and the media. It, there's some independence between it and the corporate media to a certain extent. But, and you know, unless you get conspiratorial, you can kind of imagine how this happens. But how do you explain the kind of the fact that the, the view of Russia in the American media doesn't have much variation? I think it's largely be, there's it's sort of a, a, I think, an accidental uh, consensus. And that, and that comes by virtue of the fact that you, you have basically a leftist liberal uh, president in power who's decided to take on uh, Russia for whatever reasons, or he was finagled into doing it by people in his administration, uh, whatever, and that therefore coincides with the, the more conservative uh, approach to Russia, and so that there's no reason to be essentially arguing about it. And, there are, and they, for each hot side, has reasons to... Um, dislike Putin and Russia, uh, uh, but they're different reasons. For example, you know, on the conservative side, it's generally the old geostrategic geopolitical contest with Moscow. Uh, some of the support for uh, uh, for democratization, which is not proceeding in Russia, and then on the uh, liberal side, you have the democratization issue, less the geopolitical and geostrategic issue. And then you have these cultural issues like the the, the gay lobby, um, the feminist uh, lobby, and all these people see Putin as being sort of your typical, you know, Putin rep looks like your typical white, conservative, straight male, right? The very thing that much of the Democrat, Democratic Party tends to despise, right? Therefore, you see this uh, these, these hysterical fits that occur when he appears shirtless 
or does anything that has uh, any kind of a masculine tone to it, then you see this uh, absolute hysteria. How, how can this be? You know, that, that the leader of a country actually has some machismo. That's not allowed in this country anymore. So you think it's just this convergence of kind of geopolitical and cultural concerns that, that Putin or the how Putin's Russia is viewed kind of fits into all of these concerns. Right. There's, there's sort of a accidental consensus that has occurred because uh, each side has its own approach, right? The right the right wing is more geopolitical strategically against Putin and um, the left uh, is, is more uh, culturally and socially um, opposed to uh, Putin and the way Russian society is at the present moment. Now, let's expand this out because I'd like to get your opinion on how you evaluate Russia, how analysts look at Russia nowadays, because you recently wrote that, uh, quote, what now often passes for analysis in Western, especially American media and think tanks, is nothing of the sort, and that these, quote, poison the D.C. discourse and divert analysis, analysts and policymakers from serious analysis. What are some of your main criticisms of how American analysts understand and view Russia? Uh, well, the big, I think the big issue is simply the exaggeration of what um, Russian foreign policy uh, goals are, uh, which really, I mean, just exploded into uh, virtual insanity with the Crimean uh, episode and uh, the Donbass. Now, to some extent, it's, it's understandable, but when you're reading articles about, you know, that Russia's planning to build a land bridge to the Transnistria and the Baltic states are under threat, and uh, there are submarines off the coast of Finland, and, and there's this constant barrage of this sort of, the Russians are coming again. When in fact, what uh, in, in some ways, what Obama said the other day is right, that Putin is actually operating from a weekend. A lot of these things, now a lot of it has to do with domestic politics. He's trying to shore up his legitimacy uh, because he's kind of painted himself into a corner by portraying himself as someone who's going to raise Russia up from its knees and it's not going to take any more garbage from the United States. So when something like uh, what happened in Kiev happens, and it's clearly an affront to the way it, it, it occurred, uh, it was clearly an affront to Putin, then of course Putin has to react, right? But none of these complications are brought into the discussion. Instead, it's simply Putin is acting in a vacuum. He's acting aggressively. There's no, there's no discussion. The connection is immediately lost between what happened in Kiev and how it happened and what our role was in, I don't mean necessarily organizing a revolution, but not a word about the violation of the agreement, the February 20th agreement, right? The connection between that is completely lost, between that and Crimea and Donbass. Instead, the discussion immediately forgets everything that happened in Kiev, everything that's happened beginning with NATO expansion, since the mid-90s, and instead, it's just Putin on the march. He woke up one morning and he decided to seize Crimea, and now he's moving into Donbass. The next step is a corridor to the Transnistria and the Baltics, and Poland, watch out, and who knows, next he's going to have submarines off Scotland. And this is just, uh, this is absurd, and it creates, it sows panic in, in, in the American public. Uh, it's oversimplified. There's no nuance whatsoever. You know, foreign policy and international relations are a give and take. Putin's responding to our actions just as much as we're responding to his actions. And and then what would you say would, you know, what would be your analysis uh, of Russia, not just in sense of the foreign policy, but also Putin's domestic policy system and the state that he's created? Well, there's no doubt that this is an authoritarian regime. There's massive corruption. 
democracy was weak, but at least it existed under Yeltsin. Um, there was a hyper-federalism, but at least there was some federalism. Putin pretty much dismantled um, federalism. Uh, corruption existed before Putin. So I, I don't think that it's necessary. It's fair to, to, to lay all that at, at, at his door. Um, and the other factor is that there's a connection between domestic policy and foreign policy. When Russia has a good relationship with the West, it tends to open, open up uh, domestically. When it has a bad relationship with the West, it tends to close down. When you combine um, that underlying dynamic with things like the perceived connection and, sometimes, and actually real connection between NATO expansion and color revolutions, and then the what I call the dual-use technology of democracy promotion, right? Democracy promotion, the idea is to create democracy. The problem is that we don't really care about the methodology of the regime transformation. So we set in motion um, uh, social movements, we insert ideas, we teach people how to organize, and then um, we uh, support criticism of some of these local regimes, whether it was Ukraine or whether it was back in Georgia, or even you go back to Serbia, and then suddenly a mass movement, an opposition, emerges on the central square in the capital. And after that, there's no control. That's why I say dual-use technology, right? You can have a regime transformation by transition, negotiations between the opposition and the regime, or you can have one by a forceful, whether violent or just plainly, plainly coercive, overthrow a regime, a revolutionary regime transformation. And once we insinuate all these things, all these uh, dynamics into the process and create a sort of uh, nascent revolutionary situation, uh, then there's, we've lost control, right? And so then a revolution occurs, and then the next step is what? That country is now suddenly inundated by American military officers and NATO military officers who set up all sorts of programs to create interoperability and compatibility between the local military and NATO and American military. So from Moscow's point of view, this all looks like it's a well thought out process. Democracy promotion, color revolution, and NATO expansion. And that's why all along from the mid-1990s, I was opposed to NATO expansion because what it did is it gave a perceived militarization to democracy promotion efforts. And this, and, and this is what created now a hyper cynical attitude in Russia towards the democracy and democratization. Somebody might might challenge that by saying, well, you know, you, we can't operate our, you know, foreign policy and our geopolitical interests by taking Russia, Russia into consideration. I mean, how would you answer that? that? I mean, I've even read things where people, you know, will argue against the idea that NATO expansion has any um, explanation. Like this is just something that's used as an excuse rather than a reality. I just think that that's uh, the every Russian, even Yeltsin, spoke out against NATO expansion. And then there are the other issues tied to it, things like the operations in Kosovo and so forth. Um, Putin spoke out uh, about has spoken out about, about it uh, persistently. Though remember, when he first came to power, he actually suggested within the first few months, I believe it was, certainly within the first year, that it would be possible that someday Russia would become part of NATO. Did we pick up on that? Was there any kind of uh, effort to? Uh, <laughs> entice him further along that kind of line of thinking? As far as I know, there was none. And um, 
Uh, all, all you have to do is look, go, go look back at the, uh, his Munich speech uh, in, in, uh, on 10 February 2007, uh, where he just railed against NATO expansion and the betrayal of NATO expansion beyond Germany um, uh, after there was a promise, whether it was implied or explicit, is, uh, is perhaps debatable. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know. I don't. I, I think when Putin speaks, he actually does say what he feels and thinks. Well, I think this is one of I, for me. This is one of the issues in, in a lot of the commentary that I read is that we we shouldn't actually listen to what they say, but rather what they do. I mean, this is a headline I've seen repeatedly. But I think that you know, by not actually looking at what they say, and I've dealt with this, of course, in the Soviet context and understanding Soviet history, you're missing a lot out if you just assume that everything that's coming out of their mouths is lying. Absolutely, and that's the problem. Everything, uh, it's just assume that anything the Russians say and Putin says is an out and out lie. So, for you know, for years, simply because Putin said that uh, there was a tie between uh, the Chechen Republic, which Karia, and um, al-Qaeda or jihadism, we denied it. There was a whole industry in Washington, D.C., spending a lot of time trying to cover that up and deny that reality. And that's not to say that the entire Chechen Republic of Echkeria uh, government or underground, when we'll be talking about later, were jihadists. But a significant, significant portion were, and moreover, they had developed a close relationship with um, al-Qaeda, Suhatab, and other emirs. So it was simply inaccurate um, to deny this, uh, and it gave us a completely distorted view about what was going on in North Caucasus up until actually even Boston. And I would contend that this is probably one of the reasons why the Zanaya brothers were not fully checked out, is because there was an atmosphere in Washington, D.C. that said, there's no jihadism in the North Caucasus. It's a national uh, liberation movement, and the Russians are exaggerating. And in fact, there is some reason to believe that the 19th um, uh, bomber on, two th- uh, uh, on 9-11, uh, who was not arrested, uh, Masawi, would have been uncovered before 9-11 if people in Washington, D.C. believed that Hatab was a, um, uh, uh, an al-Qaeda tied emir. But because he was in the North Caucasus, this was denied, and therefore he was not checked out. And finally, um, I would like you to situate Putin's Russia within the broader context of Russian history. What what continuities do you see, and what discontinuities do you see with contemporary Russian government and society with with past Russian historical structures? Um, well, obviously the institutions are, are modern institutions, but they do sort of reflect um, an old way of doing things. Of course, there's the old idea that the the, the, the idea that it's not so much institutions, uh, formal institutions that play the role in Russia, but rather the informal institutions, and I think that's largely true. And that, that, that there's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of continuity between the the problem, the historical Russian problem of establishing the rule of law, of honoring private private property. Um, we see this in the in the rollback of the uh, private sector in the in the Russian economy since Putin's come to power. Um, distrust between the state and society on both sides. Uh, uh, and most fundamentally just an authoritarian style of regime. But that said, we shouldn't overstate the authoritarian nature of the Russian regime. Um, There is a considerable outside of national television, for example, in the media, outside of national television, 
there's considerable free space for um, uh, free speech, open debate, discussion, even on national television. There are a whole series of political uh, talk shows uh, that I watch very routinely to get a sense of the debate and discussion that's going on. And in fact, Americans are allowed to go on these programs and uh, issue uh, anti, uh, very anti-Putin um, uh, points of view and statements on controlled state television. So it's not Echo Moscow is, is, is funded by, by Gazprom. So, and it's the most, uh, probably the most liberal and maybe one of the best day radio stations in the world, and certainly most liberal in Russia. So, you know, it shouldn't be exaggerated. And even, in, even when you look at things like elections, for example, at the local level, sometimes the opposition is actually allowed to win. So I, would, I've been call, I had been calling it up until a few years ago a soft authoritarian regime. I think it's sort of removed, it's, it's moved a little bit in a harsher direction now. We're talking sort of maybe a middle of the road authoritarian, authoritarian regime, but it's certainly not one of the more harsh authoritarian regimes, and it's nowhere near, near totalitarianism, and it has nothing to do with Stalinism. And I don't think Stalin, uh, Putin has much of an affinity for Stalin as some people have, just, uh, have been constantly uh, uh, badgering us with. And in fact, they've just approved a new project to create a new monument, museum, in honor of uh, the people who were killed in the gulag. Um, so, you know, it's a complicated place and there's a lot of politics that goes on behind the scene. And to some extent, Putin's sort of riding the tigers of all these uh, different political trends. His is generally a more conservative, a more statist view. Uh, but I believe if, if the Russian opposition were stronger, uh, he would be willing to make compromises. Right now, he doesn't have to. We actually saw this uh, in 2011, right, when uh, we had the mass demonstrations in December 2011. And Medvedev came out with a very broad uh, reform program that was, unfortunately, part of it was rolled back once Putin came to power. Uh, but the reforms that that Medvedev uh, instituted uh, before he left power were uh, actually, I think, quite positive. Unfortunately, again, most of them have been, and, and again, of course, in Russia, what's on paper isn't always fulfilled. But that's always not the fault of the state. You know, it's also Russians, rank and file Russians, and all political parties that don't want to file, follow the rules and the law. So it's a complicated picture. Russia is a very complicated place, in my view, and it's very dangerous to oversimplify it. It's very dangerous to oversimplify it. That was Gordon Hahn, analyst and advisory board member at Geostrategic Forecasting Corporation and author of Caucasus Emirate, Mujahideen, Global Jihadism in Russia's North Caucasus. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, where if you have a moment, you can write a review. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next time, goodbye. Моя морозечка, моя ты куколка, моя морозечка, моя ты душенька, моя морозечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.